This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 1st, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The insights of public choice lay waste to the idea that government interventions are somehow special, that they are less susceptible to failure than private interactions. Don Boudreau, in the lead essay in the latest Cato Policy Report, examines some of the insights that have changed economic thinking. Public choice economics arose in the immediate post-World War II era in the U.S. It was pioneered most famously by Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. And it was especially important then because at that time, there was an especially romantic notion about about democracy. You know, the Americans were... Uh, We just defeated the Nazis. Now we had these new totalitarian Cold War enemies in Russia. Uh, We're democratic. They're not. We're good. They're bad. And so people had this romantic notion about democracy. And Buchanan and Tullock said, wait, let's let's step back a moment. Uh, uh, No doubt democracy is, is better than totalitarianism or any other kind of tyranny. But let's look at democracy seriously. Let's look at it non-romantically. Let's look at it through the lens that economists use to analyze the market. I mean, it's the same people in politics who participate in the market. People are people. They don't change their colors. They don't change their fundamental character when they shift from one uh, arena to the other. And so when Buchanan and Tullock began to analyze political decision-making using economics, they were able to better explain a lot of phenomena that Uh, are readily observable in the political arena, but that are not easily explained by the sort of romantic public interest view that most people have of democratic politics. Uh, Most notably, the most famous um, finding of public choice, if I were to make a list of the greatest hits of public choice, this would be at the top, and that's the special interest group effect. How do you explain, for example, the persistence of high tariffs uh, in in modern economies. Virtually every economist, regardless of where he or she stands on the ideological spectrum, opposes tariffs. Everyone understands that tariffs do far more economic harm uh, than they, they do good. But we have high tariffs precisely because they benefit a small, identifiable interest group. Some people do benefit. The costs are spread out broadly. And so when you s- disperse the costs, when you spread the cost out widely, with the benefits concentrated on a small group, even if the total costs are much greater than the, the, the benefits that the small group receives, the, re- the recipients of those benefits have ample incentives to lobby to create the benefits and to lobby to maintain the benefits. The people who pay the costs don't have equivalent incentives. If the sugar program costs you individually, which it does, maybe $20, $30 annually in higher food prices, when you learn about it, you may be angry. You may send an email to your senator, to your representative. You're not going to spend a whole lot of money trying to fight the sugar program. And the same is true for every other person who pays the cost of the sugar program. But the beneficiaries of the sugar program, the 4,000-odd sugar farmers in the U.S., each of them make tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars annually because of the sugar program, because of the high tariffs and import restrictions on sugar. And so they have a strong incentive to spend a lot of resources to maintain the program. And so you get this bias in the system in favor of programs that benefit a concentrated small group when the cost of those programs is spread out over a large number of people. And most people 
have no idea about the sugar program. Well, the, the, the closely related to the special interest group effect is the concept of rational ignorance, which was pioneered by um, the late Gordon Tullock. Gordon died just last month. Uh, and uh, the r- rational ignorance is premised on the correct understanding, I think indisputable uh, understanding, that knowledge is costly, information is costly. People don't uh, acquire information uh, that it doesn't pay them to acquire. And, and because when people vote in elections, this is a politically incorrect thing to say, but I think it's indisputably correct. When people vote in political elections, the chances that their vote will swing the election are so small that the benefits to them of, of acquiring adequate knowledge about what is at stake in an election is really, really tiny. And so people don't spend as much time as they should, by some criteria, learning about the issues that are at stake, learning about the positions that the different candidates take, and therefore they, they remain ignorant about things that actually affect them. And so most people don't know uh, about the U.S. Sugar Program. Every semester I teach a freshman level principles of economics course. I have 328 students in my class. Admittedly, they're only 18, 19 year old kids mostly. But I do a survey. Say, so how many of you know about the sugar program? And I explain to them briefly what it is. Two or three hands go up every semester, maybe. So at most, at most, 3% of the class, and I'm not sure how many of those hands are honest. The vast majority of the students have never heard about it. And I explain to them that they shouldn't feel ashamed. It's perfectly rational because there's nothing any of them can individually do about it. So they spend no time learning about the program, uh, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's understandable that they don't. And what's true for them is true for nearly every other voter. I don't know what the data are. I suspect if you did a survey of, of all adult Americans and asked how many of you know about the sugar program, the number who could honestly answer in, uh, that they know anything about the details of the U.S. sugar program would be probably 1% to 2%. And that's just one program. There are many, many others of, 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 that equally affect or even more uh, 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 deeply affect the pocketbooks of Americans, and they don't know about them because they remain rationally ignorant about them. And so rational ignorance combined with the special interest group effect are explained uh, by public choice as the sources of a great bias in policy outcomes toward these uh, uh, constant, these policies that create concentrated benefits, which have dispersed costs. Washington, D.C. is home of federal regulators. It's home of giant law firms that uh, deal with those regulators. And so in a lot of ways, Washington, D.C. is this uh, place where knowledge exists, and it is knowledge that is only valuable because of the volume of uh, regulation uh, and other impositions that the federal government creates. As, as you know, just a, a block from where we sit is K Street, famously known as Gucci Gulch. Uh, K Street is uh, legendary for, for being the address of many, many uh, law firms slash lobbyists uh, who wear Gucci loafers, apparently. In, in, disproportionately. Uh, the, the sugar farmers, for example, let's stick with that example. Sugar farmers don't personally spend a lot of time in Washington pressing the flesh with congressmen and with, and with regulators, uh, but they understand the importance of the sugar program 
to their own well-being. So what they do is they form an association, they pay heavy dues into that association voluntarily. That association then hires uh, lobbyists. They hire they hire high-priced, very talented, very ambitious, very smart, very well-connected people to constantly keep in front of Congress the importance of maintaining the sugar program. So. Uh, a, a third greatest hit of public choice is the concept of rent-seeking, another concept also pioneered by Gordon Tullock. And the idea is that uh, when government is in the, because government is in the business of giving away special privileges, of transferring wealth from one party to another, from some groups to another group, uh, people who stand to gain by these transfers will, of course, pay to increase their chances of getting the transfers. And this is a very costly process. When you're uh, uh, diverting a lot, of, particularly human talent, a lot of very intelligent, very ambitious, hardworking people from doing productive things into lobbying Congress for special privileges for special interest groups, you create a further drag on the economic system. And so the more powerful government becomes, the greater the scope of government's activity the more we see uh, interest groups uh, engaged in rent-seeking, diverting resources, again, mostly human resources, diverting valuable resources away from productive economic activities and into the process of simply trying to transfer profits or transfer wealth from one group to the other. Those transfers themselves don't produce anything, and therefore the resources used to bring about those transfers are wasted from society's standpoint. The economist Charles Tebow used to talk about uh, how people choose the bundles of services that a community offers, and when you find yourself a city to live in, you are essentially choosing this right. package over some other package, and yeah. politicians basically are the same way. You don't ever get the ideal. Uh, you don't. In fact, in the case of going to a, a voting booth, uh, the choice is even more attenuated. The choice is even more limited than when you vote with your feet by moving from one town to another. The choice is never perfect, but but in the case of going to a voting booth, the choice is 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 really uh, so different from making a private choice in the market that we should we should have another word for it. We we don't. We call it political choice as opposed to private choice, public choice as opposed to private choice. But these are not the, the, comparing these two co uh, domains of making decisions uh, reveals that decisions made in the private market are so very different from decisions made politically that the the the, the, the two should not really be compared. The f private decisions yield uh, yield results that are much better suited to the individual decision-makers. They yield results that the individual decision-maker truly wants with a greater likelihood than do decisions made in uh, a voting booth. One of the great, there are many errors, but one of the greatest errors that is committed by not only Americans, but by, by people worldwide today when they romanticize democracy is to anthropomorphize the collective uh, if a majority votes in favor of policy X, uh, people treat that in the same way that they would if they observe me uh, choosing to buy uh, a, an apple rather than a banana. And they say, well, you know, uh, Boudreaux chose the apple rather than the banana. The majority chose Canada Jones over Canada Smith. Uh, the 
the differences in these kinds of choices are too vast to make that anthropomorphism to, to, to make that kind of of, of comparison uh, sensible. Um, one of the things that I I point out in my in my Cato essay uh, is that uh, you know when when we choose uh, items in a supermarket, uh, we can put into our basket exactly those products that we want. We don't have to put into our shopping cart any items that we don't want. And so you get to finely craft your grocery cart, the contents of your grocery cart, to your taste and to your budget. When you choose a politician, uh, you don't get to do that. You don't get to choose uh, 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 policies from, that you like from Professor Jones, from, excuse me, from Candidate Jones uh, and combine those with some other policies that you prefer from Candidate Smith. In fact, you have to choose either Candidate Jones or Candidate Smith. And so Candidate Jones almost surely uh, uh, if, if, if you prefer Candidate Jones to, to Candidate Smith overall, it's nevertheless true that Candidate Jones probably takes some positions that you oppose, and Candidate Smith takes some positions that you prefer to those taken by Candidate Jones. But you don't get to mix and match. And so the best that we can say when the best, when uh, Candidate Jones defeats Candidate Smith in an election, is that the majority of the voters preferred the overall bundle of the positions represented by Candidate Jones compared to the bundle of positions represented by Candidate Smith. But we can say nothing. We can say nothing about any individual policy. It very well may be that Candidate Jones won the election despite her position on taxes rather than because of her position on taxes. So that Candidate Smith lost the election because of his position on the environment rather than because of his position on the environment. Naturally, when a politician gets elected, he or she has no way to know uh, which of the positions the voters, uh, uh, of his positions uh, the voters really like, as opposed to those that the voters would prefer uh, that that candidate not have. And so each candidate, each victorious candidate, assumes that every position he or she took during the campaign is one that at least the majority of the voters prefer. And that's almost certainly not the case. Every victorious candidate, even ones that win by large majorities, in fair and honest elections with wide franchises. Even those candidates almost certainly take some positions that even a majority of the people who voted for them would prefer that they not take. But we have no way in the nature of the beast to distinguish uh, those policies that the majority of the voters would prefer the candidate not take from the positions that the voters, in fact, prefer. Voters, for their part, as we discussed earlier, may not be aware of uh, the costs that would be imposed on them through policies that one candidate or another actually supports. And it seems that uh, in many ways, candidates would per- also prefer not to talk about uh, oh. those issues <laughs> where uh, it, it, if, if apprised with the full information, that candidate might be compelled to either change their position or uh, lose. We were having this conversation not long after uh, Professor Jonathan Gruber uh, has been now infamously uh, shown in various videos explaining the political deceptions uh, that, that went into the marketing of Obamacare just prior to its passage in Congress. Uh, and th- this is a perfect example or a perfect illustration of the core public choice insights. Uh, David Friedman points out, and I think he's right, that Jonathan Gruber probably didn't mean that the American voters are stupid. In economist language, Gruber probably meant that 
that voters are rationally ignorant. Uh, but the very fact that they're rationally ignorant means that we cannot assume that that which they vote for is something that they really do want. If you remain rationally ignorant of something, uh, then uh, you very well may support that something when you are rationally ignorant of it, but then come to oppose it when you become more informed about it. Like foreign oil, like, for <laughs> example. I, I, yeah, I think yeah, because yeah, yeah, We've yeah, had politicians yeah, yeah. for 40 years telling us we've got to break our addiction and, from foreign sources of energy. And, uh, yeah, I always hate the term being addicted to oil. We, we, we use oil <laughs> because it's a low-priced, highly efficient source of energy. It's not an addiction in the way that you know getting addicted to heroin or tobacco is. Uh, anyhow, the... Uh, 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 the, 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 the very fact, it's, it's in the nature of politics that the decision makers, the voters, are incentivized to remain ignorant of the very things that they are supposed to be informed about. That's a fundamental flaw in majoritarian democratic decision-making. It may be that it's the best we can do, uh, but it remains a huge flaw that most people remain unaware of, most people at least who haven't studied public choice economics. Uh, in fact, I do think there is something we can do about it, uh, uh, and that is to reduce as much as possible the scope of activities engaged in by government, increase as much as possible the range of activities that individuals get to choose personally. When make, individuals make private personal choices, they are not rationally ignorant because they themselves bear the costs and receive the benefits of becoming informed about the choices they're making, not so in the political process. And so um, while we can never make politics perfect, we can't, can't make the market perfect either, we can at least move toward uh, a, a system where the individuals who are making choices have incentives to become better informed and hence make better decisions. And that's moving toward a system where you have more private choices and fewer public choices. Don Boudreaux is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. He blogs at Cafe Hayek. Read more about public choice at our website, cato.org.